A podcast team started looking into the biggest hack in history and ended up in the middle of the story. A mysterious voicemail, disappearing files, it got personal. Breach is a new podcast that takes you inside the world's biggest hacks. They set out to answer questions about the hack of a huge American company and found themselves investigating a Russian conspiracy. Subscribe to Breach, B-R-E-A-C-H, in your podcast app right now. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the Trump and Sessions-led resurgence of the war on drugs and Trump's plan to take it to new heights of cruelty and barbarism. Our clips today come from Democracy Now!, a progressive faith sermon from Dr. Roger Ray, Counterspin, and Off-Kilter. And stick around to the end for a voicemail defending the Barbary Wars, another with thoughts on my analogy on oppressive headwinds and my responses to them. I want to ask Michelle Alexander, uh, there, was, there appeared to be some hope in the last few years that the country was finally beginning to turn away from mass incarceration, especially when it came to drugs. And now we're seeing under the new Trump administration, we heard what some of the stuff that uh, attorney, the new attorney general, Jeff Sessions, says. Your reaction to uh, where the country appeared to be heading and where now the, the turn that it, it's now taking? Well, I think it's clear by the rhetoric coming out of the Justice Department today that they are committed to reviving a warlike mentality um, towards poor people and people of color. And uh, I think we need to respond forcefully um, with as much courage um, and compassion as we can muster in these times, um, you know. A few decades ago, politicians were banging the podium, calling for law and order and get tough and declaring war. And our, you know, television sets were filled with images of crack mothers, crack babies. Um, and a literal war was unleashed um, on communities, war that um, devastated the lives of people like Susan um, and families and communities of color nationwide. Well, today, um, the enemy has been defined as those brown-skinned immigrants sneaking across the border. And, you know, Donald Trump has banged the podium, you know, saying we bringing must get rid of them. Yes, he, claiming he, he they're getting— yesterday with Columbia. Yes, <laughs> claiming they're bringing drugs and that they're murderers and um, urging our nation um, to get rid of them all. Um, you know, that war that was declared on drugs <laughs> decades ago gave birth to a private prison system, gave birth to the system of mass incarceration. And if we had risen to the challenge of the war on drugs the way that we could have and should have, the system of mass mass deportation would not exist today. Uh, the private detention centers that are locking up uh, immigrants um, today wouldn't even exist um, but for um, the drug war that was waged um, with little resistance for decades um, in this country and that birthed a prison system, um, you know, a penal system unlike anything that this world had ever seen before. So I hope 
um, that we will learn the lessons um, that the drug war has to teach us um, and rise to the challenge this moment in history presents and build a, a truly transformational revolutionary movement um, that will not only dismantle the system of mass incarceration and mass deportation, um, but will lead us to a new way of life. Uh, a new way of caring for one another and for our communities um, and reimagine what justice can and should be in this country. But, Michelle, that's not the direction, of course, of the Trump administration. Jeff Sessions, the attorney general of the United States, just announcing an escalation on the war on drugs, uh, uh, going after um, uh, drug offenders, people who are addicted. Can you talk about the significance of what this means, pushing for mandatory minimums, when there's been this consensus now? Uh, in many ways, across the political spectrum of um, the right, from the Koch brothers to Newt Gingrich to progressives who've been pushing for um, reform for a long time. What does this mean? What effect will it have? Well, at, at the federal level, it'll have a significant effect for those who are arrested and charged with federal crimes, particularly drug crimes, and who, you know, be facing years, perhaps decades longer than they might otherwise have, um, you know, before, you know, Sessions kind of overturned Obama's memo directing um, a slightly more compassionate approach. Um, but there's tremendous movement. Um, in states and in communities around the country, in places like California and Ohio, I can, you know, go down the the, the, the list of um, states and communities that are calling for uh, legalization of marijuana, that are moving to declassify um, drug, you know, offenses from felonies to simple misdemeanors, there is momentum that will not be turned back overnight. And that's why I think it's important for us not only um, to see the necessity of, um, you know, continuing to build momentum um, to end the drug war, but to understand that the racial politics that gave birth to this drug war are the same racial politics that have given birth to the war on immigrants. And it's not simply a matter of building a movement um, to reform drug policy. It's about building a movement that will break the history and cycle of these racially punitive politics that birth systems of racial and social control in whatever form. Um, and so I'm hoping that in the months and years to come that we'll see uh, more coordination, more unity between the movements to end mass incarceration and the movements to end mass deportation and come to see it's the same struggle um, to define who is worthy, who has dignity and value and who is disposable. Um, and ultimately, um, we are trying to birth a new America uh, in which each and every one of us, no matter who we are, where we came from or what we may have done, um, is viewed as fully human with dignity and value and, um, you know, deserving um, well, of inclusion in our nation, um, despite um, the efforts to distract and to divide.
I hope you know that I take no pleasure in either rehearsing these facts or revealing them. But here is the naked, unavoidable, and painful truth. The government of the United States in successive administrations has lied to the population in order to gain their acquiescence to policies that result in the oppression and imprisoning of minorities and dissidents. They do this in many ways, but the most insidious and the most dishonest is about drug abuse. Now, let's be very honest about this. Heroin is a scourge. It's highly addictive, yet relatively cheap. It's it's an available drug that's killing tens of thousands of people in America now. More people died from overdoses of opioids last year than died from car crashes or gunshot wounds. If making it illegal and criminally charging those who manufacture, distribute, and use it would wipe it off the face of the earth, I would feel very differently. But we know for a fact that after 50 years of a war on drugs, we have failed entirely to put a dent in drug use. But our policies have ruined the lives of millions of people, cost us billions in tax dollars, and has almost single-handedly broken up minority families and kept sons and daughters of 19th century slaves locked up in chaos and in poverty. I know that not all of you are going to agree with me, and I know that just saying it out loud in church would have guaranteed a rush to the exit in every other church I've ever worked for. But I adamantly favor the nationwide legalization of pot, and I do so knowing that it can be addictive and that it can turn productive people into basement-dwelling couch potatoes, and it increases traffic accidents. I know that. But I favor the legalization of pot because, all things considered, it seems to be less harmful and addictive than America's drug of choice, which is alcohol, and because in states where marijuana use has been made legal, it appears to reduce the rate of addiction and the frequency of death due to drug overdoses from harder drugs like heroin, cocaine, crack, and fentanyl. I could go on to talk about taxing and regulating the product and its medical benefits, but this is not my pro-pot sermon. This is my sermon about how the government of the United States for 50 years has used totally trumped-up drug laws to incarcerate black people, to keep lots of unruly government critics on parole and on a felon's list, and to trick the rest of us into accepting this monstrously unethical situation. The idea has been marketed to you that addiction is a crime. Perhaps more deeply, it's been marketed through the church as a sin. Drug use is something bad people do. And if you do it, you're a bad person. Because no one makes them do it. They choose to do it. Most of us believe, in fact, that they could stop if they just wanted to. Or if they can't now, they could have before they fried their brains on all those drugs. What we know, and we know this based on math. I I get so uncomfortable with people saying, well, I agree with this or I don't agree with that. You know, you can agree or not that the Beatles were the best band ever. You can't disagree that two and two is four. (laughs) 
There are things that are just true because of reality. And you may say reality is perception, but, but as Einstein said, it's a persistent one. It, reality, <laughs> reality seems to stick with us somehow. Hard data research shows that the USA, though it has the most strict criminalization of drug use, has the largest percentage of our population in prison and the highest percentage of drug use in the world. For example, Americans are four times more likely to use heroin than the next closest country, which is New Zealand. 16% of Americans have at least used cocaine once. Only 4% of the people in New Zealand and most countries are way down in 1 and 2%. There are four European countries that have essentially decriminalized drug use And while that doesn't fix the problem, each of those countries has seen a reduction in drug use. And, you know, you look at some of the countries where they have decriminalized drug use and you think, well, it it dropped drug use by 10%. But because of needle sharing in the illegal world and then when it's no longer criminal and you can get clean needles, it has dropped the spread of HIV by 90%. It has dropped the rate of, of uh, death from overdose by 70 or 80 percent. In the Netherlands, which has uh, much more liberal policies than the U- USA, only about 2 percent of the population has ever tried cocaine, whereas in the USA it's eight times that many. So it really isn't about money. I mean, the Netherlands is uh, a middle to upper middle class economic uh, uh, community, uh, uh, predominantly a white community. It isn't about money and it isn't about race. It is apparently related, at least in large part, to incredibly stupid, indefensible and cruel federal laws and a prison system for which a lot of people one day would go to hell if there was such a thing. Though the numbers of senselessly incarcerated people may make me reconsider my theology about that. I don't think there is a hell. I, some days I just think there ought to be one. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Conservatives try to market to the public that drug use is a crime that deserves the most severe punishment. Bleeding heart liberals generally try to say that it's an issue of physiology, that people get hooked on the drugs and they can't help themselves, so it's a medical issue. And I'm not going to say that there's not uh, support for either one of those positions. You know, anecdotal evidence abounds. And when you talk about the, the millions of people that have addiction problems, all of us know someone that that we could anecdotally say fits in this category or fits in that category. Everybody knows someone who's an addict. But in the 1960s, scientists conducted these experiments on rats. And they put a rat in a cage with two water bottles. One bottle just had water, and the other bottle had water that was laced with either cocaine or heroin. And in virtually every case, the rat would keep going back to the drugged water, and they would take it until they died of an overdose. So, what did the scientists discover? Drugs are addictive, drugs are bad, and drugs will kill you. And that was the message that built federal policy. But about a decade later, a very clever researcher wondered if it might not be the drugs. He wondered if it might be the cage. So he repeated the experiment, but this time it wasn't one rat in a small cage. He created what he called Rat Park. 
big space, lots of rats, several good things to eat, colored balls to play with, there was plenty of sex. And in Rat Park, there were two water bottles, one with water and the other with drugged water. And the rats tried both, but given a choice between good food, sex, playful friends, none of the rats became addicted or overdosed. In fact, they didn't like the drugged water. In fact, the same researchers pointed out that we have a human version of the rat in the cage experiment. We called it Vietnam. At one point, upwards of 10% of American soldiers stationed in a miserable jungle where they did not want to be and where they might be killed at any moment were using heroin. It was feared that when all of these soldiers came back home that they would be roaming the streets as heroin addicts, which quite evidently simply did not happen. When they came home to family, jobs, school, they were no longer interested in heroin. They were not criminals. They were not physically addicted. They changed their cages. They went from a cage that made heroin look like a good choice to a cage where there were better choices. Now, I did my master's thesis on the on treatment of addiction, and I spent a lot of time in recovery groups where we talked about the progressive disease of addiction in which addicts will lose their job and lose their family and lose their health if they didn't change their ways. And what we were less able to see was that a lot of the people didn't have a drug problem. They had a drug solution. They had already lost their family or lost their job or lost their health. And drugs or alcohol was the solution to the pain that they were in. A lot of us, uh, a lot of how we have reacted to drug use in America has frankly depended upon race and class. We all know that Billie Holiday died from heroin addiction. But did you know that at the same time Billie Holiday was hooked on heroin that Judy Garland was too? Judy Garland's doctor told her to take longer vacations and spend more time with family and friends. Billie Holiday was put in jail and handcuffed to a bed. James Taylor was a heroin addict. Do you think of James Taylor as a criminal? Sweet baby James? Is it a weak-minded person who's saying, I've seen fire and I've seen rain? But if James Taylor were black, he would be dead now. And that's race in America. Now, I know that a lot of you have heard a lot of this before. Some of you have heard me talk about it more than once. But you know what? I've known for 10 years that you only need to use deodorant and cologne if you don't bathe regularly, and I still get out of the shower and use both of them. And folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm a fairly clever guy. And still, marketing makes me feel like I need to do something that I know good and well I don't need to do. So you know that addiction is not a crime. You know that. You know addiction is not a crime. And yet you live comfortably in a country with a million people in cages for using drugs. What do I have to say to create the discomfort necessary for us to change our prejudices towards addicts? This nation's attorney general, Jefferson Beauregard Sessions, has directed prosecutors to reverse the more lenient approach to drug charges under the Obama administration and to seek maximum sentences for drug use, drug possession, and has even reversed the decision against using 
uh, for-profit prisons in order to have more prison space. He has validated the use of for-profit prisons again. This has nothing to do with reducing drug use. It has nothing to do with reducing addiction or death from overdose. This has everything to do with increasing the prison population. It has to do with Jefferson Beauregard Sessions' racist hatred of brown and black people. He's not stupid. He knows what he's doing. He knows this doesn't work to help with the drug problem. He is just prejudiced and mean enough to put poor white people, black people, and brown people in prison so that there are more jobs for government employees, lawyers, judges, and more construction and service contracts for federal prisons and for-profit prisons. And if that doesn't make you angry, then there has to be a cold, hard place where your heart was supposed to be. Forty-five years ago, when Nixon turned Johnson's war on poverty into a war on the poor by jacking up laws to criminalize drug use, this nation was sold a lie. It was marketed to you, and you have it straight from the mouth of a Nixon administration advisor, John Ehrlichman, who said, did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. If you didn't know about this before, you know about it now. So now what are you going to do about it? Several states and the District of Columbia have now legalized marijuana for recreational use, as long as certain rules are followed, like keeping it away from minors and keeping revenue away from criminal enterprises. Still more states allow for medical marijuana. But pot is still illegal under federal law, classified a Schedule I drug like heroin. Many assumed, smelling the wind, if you will, that these tensions would be overridden as more states legalize and as public approval, already around 60 percent, increases, probably resulting in national legalization. A profitable industry is growing with just that expectation, particularly as states that have legalized aren't reporting negative impacts in public health or crime. But Attorney General Jeff Sessions' stance is reflected in his declaration, good people don't smoke marijuana. His recent move, rescinding Obama-era guidance that had federal prosecutors take a laissez-faire approach to states, should probably be understood in that light. What are the possible impacts of Sessions' animus, and what, or who, is missing from the current conversation about marijuana and its legal status? Art Way is a senior director for National Criminal Justice Reform Strategy at the Drug Policy Alliance and state director for DPA's Colorado office. He joins us now by phone from Denver. Welcome to Counterspin, Art Way. Thank you, Janine. 
Well, the so-called Cole memo from previous Deputy Attorney General James Cole said, as I understand it, that if states with legalized marijuana followed some rules, the feds wouldn't crack down on them. Sessions rescinding that, along with other related guidance, doesn't order federal prosecutors to do anything, but it sort of sounds like it greenlights it if they want to do it. Some facilities and states are saying, bring it on, um, but others seem worried. It sounds like it's mainly causing confusion. Do you see potential fallout on the ground from this in Colorado or elsewhere? You know, I think there is concern here that the goal was to chill investment into the industry and, and sort of slow things down. Obama-era guidance basically said, you know, this isn't going to be our highest priority. I think it's important to note that it did not prevent federal action, mm-hmm. uh, but it essentially said this won't be our highest priority. And if you do these certain things, you know, we're going to back off and let this take place. It allowed for a private industry to invest in the new marijuana industry. It allowed for states to relax and start to regulate the new industry. And now with Sessions rescinding that guidance, we don't think it's really going to impact the industry as it stands right now, but it may slow down certain investment and maybe slow the states down from doing things that they would have done if he would have kept the Obama guidance in place. Well, there's a big picture sense that you get from media anyway, that there's kind of a, a zeitgeist, you know, that pot is okay now and is only going to get more okay. And you wouldn't really guess from that, that there's anybody still going to jail for using marijuana. But that's not really true, is it? No, especially in certain states. I mean, you know, places like Oklahoma and Louisiana, you, you know, you have people doing serious time for possessing marijuana. In the states that have legalized, they've already kind of gone down a decriminalization path. So like here in Colorado, you know, less than 1% of our state prison population is there where marijuana is their most serious offense. But that's not the case in many other states. But even in places like Colorado that have decriminalized marijuana over the last decade, the collateral consequences of a marijuana-related charge can still impact somebody for life. So what you saw in California recently with Prop 64 is collateral relief that went along with their marijuana initiative and went along with their legalization attempt. So we didn't really see that in Colorado and Washington, and we're trying to kind of pick up the pieces and allow people to expunge their records for things that are now legal under Amendment 64 here in Colorado. So, you know, even though people may not be in prison for marijuana all over the country, people are still dealing with the collateral consequences of a marijuana-related charge. Yeah, it's good not to forget that, you know, uh, being arrested for possession even of a small amount can be deportation, excluding from housing or education, losing custody of your kids, you know, and I think the idea of it going from that primarily impacting people of color around the country to being this profitable industry. I hear $6 billion nationally, you know, Mm -hmm. that's run by white people. There's kind of a dystopian image there. Yeah, we've evolved to that point. You know, I think in 2011, when Colorado and Washington were were first starting to push the envelope here, you know, that reparative justice element to marijuana legalization was was not present. That's something that's evolved over the last couple of years, and it culminated with what we saw with Prop 64. And so here in Colorado, we're trying to go back, basically, and say, you know, let's refine our regulatory framework. Let's ensure that we 
increase access to the industry, limit barriers to the industry, make sure felons can be involved, establish micro licenses so people don't have to raise a quarter million to $3 billion just to get into the game. They can get into the game at a much smaller level. But it's kind of harder to go backwards and do these things as opposed to doing them up front. I wish I would have had the wisdom back in 2011 to think along the reparative justice lines, but it was just one of those things you had to learn as things go. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to take us backward, but I do want to say that in case folks forget, you know, that the war on drugs has always been racist, you have things like Kansas State Representative Steve Alford, who said in 2018, you know, that we need to remember why marijuana was outlawed in the past, which was in part because, quote, African Americans, they were basically users and they basically responded the worst off to those drugs just because of their character makeup, their genetics and that close quote Uh, yeah that's um that's recent news and he seemed to be referring to to harry anslinger you know the first commissioner of the federal bureau of narcotics who ran the anti-marijuana crusade in the late 30s who said reefer makes darkies think they're as good as white men you know Uh, (laughs) yeah i I think anslinger would have even been you know proud or even a little bit shocked about what alfred said i mean for him to say that in 2018 is 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 it's sad, but it's almost impressive, but <laughs> in a unfortunate way. But yeah, I think people don't realize that our drug policies did not begin from some notion of how do we keep people healthy and safe. Drug policies have always been a way for law enforcement and people in control to put their hands on the undesirables in their communities, the so-called undesirables, poor people, people of color. You know, we saw it with opium when it comes to Chinese immigrants on the West Coast. You know, cocaine was affiliated uh, with African-Americans once they started to leave the sharecropping fields and get jobs in the cities like Mobile and New Orleans. And, you know, marijuana prohibition really started here in the Southwest when it comes to the migrations of Central Americans and Mexicans coming up into the country. So whenever there was a concern about certain migrations and, and, and people being a part of this country who, who some didn't feel shouldn't be a part of this country, you know, drug policy popped up as a way to kind of keep control of the racial and social hierarchy. Absolutely. And that as we move in a different direction, you can't just erase that. You know, you still have to be mindful of that going forward. Well, let me just ask, let you close with, I just heard about in New York, they are pushing for the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act that's going to direct or try to direct tax revenue from marijuana sales to education and to job training specifically in the communities most harmed by the war on drugs. And I understand that Colorado is has its own programs that have something to do with not forgetting, you know, where we came from as we go forward. Yeah, I mean, we are out to ensure there's a reparative justice aspect to our legalization framework. And we're also working to reallocate marijuana tax revenue to communities most in need when it comes to mental health and drug dependency through certain public health interventions like law enforcement assistance diversion and co-responder programs. We want to ensure that in the jurisdictions where these programs are implemented, that they do address those who historically have had the most problems with prohibition and with law enforcement. We want to make sure that these public health interventions just don't become some kind of glorious diversion program for law enforcement where they pick and choose who they want to help. We want to ensure that those who are in and out of the local jails on a monthly basis 
in and out of local jails where their dependency and where their mental health issues remain, we're trying to divert them up front from the local jails. And we want to make sure that uh, law enforcement in those jurisdictions looks to help people who historically have been disproportionately targeted by law enforcement during the drug war. And that's people of color and poor people struggling with mental health and drug dependency. Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. With three mattress models, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential, Casper mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. Not to mention, the breathable design helps to keep you cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. After all, you spend one-third of your life sleeping, so you might as well be comfortable. You can order yours with confidence, backed by Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial, and it'll be delivered right to your door in an impossibly small-sized box with free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. The fun of unboxing my Casper from its tiny box and watching it expand to its full size was probably one of the highlights of 2015 for me. It could have been a slow year, but the important part is that the years of sleeping on the Casper since then have brought the real joy. So if you want to try it yourself, get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash best and using the code best at checkout. That's casper.com slash best, offer code best for $50 off your mattress purchase. Terms and conditions apply. Earlier this month, Attorney General Jeff Sessions rescinded the Justice Department policy that paved the way to marijuana legalization and ordered federal prosecutors to enforce the laws that Congress makes. That directive has now created a mess of confusion in the 29 states in D.C. that have legalized marijuana for medical and or recreational use and among the 60 percent of the U.S. population who lives in one of those places, me included. To help me unpack this, I'm joined by Inga. Fricklin. She's a former assistant state attorney in Cook County who now lives in Oregon, a state that allows recreational marijuana. And she was also involved in that state's legalization campaign. Inga, thanks so much for joining the show. Well, thanks so much for asking me. So just to kick us off, help us understand uh, kind of the 101. What did Jeff Sessions do? What did his rollback of that guidance mean? Uh, and where do things stand right now legally? To understand that, I think we need to back it up to the Obama administration. Remember, we have had the marijuana as Schedule One on the books for the federal government since Nixon in 1971. And that law has, that's not been changed since then. The Obama administration did not change the law. And I do fault them for that. Instead, what the Justice Department did with a memo authored by, uh, I guess, an assistant attorney general named Cole, hence the name Cole Memo, said, we're not going to enforce it. Which, you know, I'm a lawyer and, and thinking strictly from a rule of law point of view, not changing the law and saying, hey, let's just not reinforce the thing, is really not very good public policy. But that's that's where we were. And what the, the memo 
it was like a three-page long memo, said that U.S. attorneys in the 93 separate uh, districts that the U.S. is divided up into had the were discouraged from prosecuting things which were legal under state law. And the various states took that pretty much as a go-ahead that the federal government is not going to bother us and we just have to enforce our own law. And the Cole Memo also said you know, that the states, to have a free pass here, clearly had to be enforcing their own law. Uh, for example, making sure that marijuana stayed out of the hands of kids and that that's something which could be prosecuted. So that was the status of the U.S. attorneys being directed to just hold back. By removing that memo, Sessions is sort of turning the clock back to pre-Cole memo times, all the way back to 1971, with the U.S. attorneys free to prosecute what's on the books. And that would include violations of federal marijuana law, even those those things are now legal under state law. So that's what we've come to today. And in the last minute or so that I have with you, there's also some hope among advocates for legalization along the lines that you've just been describing that Sessions' action could actually mobilize uh, not just folks to out there in the streets pushing back the general public and at the state level, but actually potentially could spur enough pushback in Congress to pass some kind of legislation that that locks into stone. Uh, the Cole memo in a way that it could no longer be uh, played with by future administrations as we're seeing now. Do you think that that's a potential outcome here? And, and how do you think this all ends up? I think that a huge amount of blowback may well have the effect of changing some law. But I don't want to see just, oh, let's lock the Cole memo in. No, there's been... Uh, Congressional action for the last couple of years saying no federal money spent going after medical marijuana, and there's some movement to extend that to uh, adult use. But rather than keeping the bad law federal on the books and say, let's continue not enforcing it, I want them to go the whole nine yards and say, okay, this law has got to be repealed. So I hope we're going to be able to harness some of this uh, blowback that's coming, not just from street-level activists, but from all the businesses and venture capitalists who want to invest to finally get this problem solved. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, tell Congress punitive drug policies don't work, harm reduction does. 
This month, in the midst of the chaos of yet another major East Coast snowstorm, Attorney General Jeff Sessions quietly released a memo strongly encouraging federal prosecutors to apply charges that bring the death penalty in certain drug cases, including dealing with extremely large quantities of drugs. As this is part of the Trump administration's response to the opioid crisis, many, including myself, have wondered aloud if Sessions would advocate using capital punishment on pharmaceutical executives. The ACLU responded to Sessions' memo by calling it absurd and unconstitutional, stating, quote, drug trafficking is not an offense for which someone can receive the death penalty. The Supreme Court has repeatedly and consistently rejected the use of the death penalty in cases where there has been no murder by the convicted individual, unquote. Beyond that, the organization Drug Policy Alliance has extensively detailed reports on why what are called drug-induced homicide laws are counterproductive and inhumane. At the peak of the war on drugs in the 1980s, the federal government and many states passed these laws to punish people who provided drugs that led to accidental overdose deaths, with sentences equivalent to those for manslaughter and murder. They were rarely used, but with the recent spike in overdose deaths, they've been revived by police and prosecutors. There was a 300% increase in these charges from 2011 to 2016. As with most drug laws, drug-induced homicide laws disproportionately affected the poor, people of color, and those with felony records who have a difficult time getting jobs. Not only that, but they can provide a disincentive to call for help when witnessing an overdose if that person has provided the drugs. And we're not just talking about selling drugs to a stranger. Many have lost loved ones from an accidental overdose after sharing drugs with them, and then lost their freedom and sometimes children because they were the ones who provided those drugs. The Drug Policy Alliance is encouraging people to respond to Sessions' memo by writing and calling your members of Congress. On their campaign page, which we've linked to in the show notes, they have provided a sample letter that you can send immediately to your members of Congress, and the letter can also double as a call script guide. The Drug Policy Alliance advocates for the expansion of harm reduction services and effective treatment, including establishment of safe consumption services, drug checking, syringe access programs, 911 Good Samaritan laws, and evidence-based drug education. The organization also advocates for the Marijuana Justice Act that would end federal marijuana prohibition, support racial justice, and help repair communities most devastated by the war on drugs. But as you know, Republicans need to be kicked out of the House and Senate this November if we ever hope to see that legislation passed. Head over to drugpolicy.org to learn more. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if opposing failed policies and adopting the solutions that will save lives instead is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about telling Congress that punitive drug policies don't work, harm reduction does via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. President Trump has reiterated his calls for the U.S. to impose the death penalty on drug dealers, praising countries like the Philippines, China and Singapore that apply capital punishment to drug traffickers. This is Trump speaking in Moon Township, Pennsylvania on Saturday.
Think of it. You kill 5,000 people with drugs because you're smuggling them in and you're making a lot of money and people are dying and they don't even put you in jail. They don't do anything. But you might get 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. You might get a year. But you're not going to get... And then you wonder why we have a problem. That's why we have a problem, folks. And I don't think, I don't think we should play games. Now, During his speech, President Trump recounted conversations with Chinese and Singaporean leaders who he said solved their country's drug problems by executing drug traffickers. Trump has also repeatedly expressed admiration for Philippines President Rodrigo Duterte and said he's done a, quote, unbelievable job on the drug problem. Last month, the International Criminal Court opened a preliminary investigation into accusations that Duterte has committed crimes against humanity by overseeing the killing of up to to 8,000 people in his so-called war on drugs. This is not the first time Trump has called for executing drug dealers. Earlier this month, he made similar remarks during a White House summit on the opioid crisis. On Friday, The Washington Post reported the Trump administration studying new policy that could allow prosecutors to seek the death penalty for drug dealers. For more, we're joined by Whitney Brown, the managing director of policy at the Drug Policy Alliance. Her recent piece for The Hill is headlined Trump's call for death Death penalty is the wrong response to drug war. Whitney Brown, welcome to Democracy Now. Uh, talk about what Trump called for this weekend. Well, basically, he's saying he wants to execute execute people who bring drugs into the country or otherwise sell drugs. The problem is supply side initiatives have failed. We have a war on drugs that started in the 1970s. If it was a success, we wouldn't be having an opioid overdose crisis today. Well, in the in the waning days of the Obama administration, there seemed to be consensus on moving forward uh, to end the war on drugs, to to begin uh, trying to uh, reduce the prison population. But now the Trump administration clearly is going in the opposite direction. Exactly. I think Trump and also the attorney general are both re- going back to ways that we know have failed, which has led to mass criminalization in the U.S. It's devastated communities of color. It's been racially disproportionate in the ways that drug laws have been enforced. It's been a failure. And we actually know how to save lives. Let's be clear, we have a crisis here. But we know how to save lives. And that's by implementing harm reduction policies that allow people to use drugs safely, engage with them if they want to seek treatment, and move away from a criminal justice sector focus on the drug to a public health sector focus. So let's go to President Trump um, again, speaking this weekend in Moon Township, Pennsylvania. When I was in China and other places, by the way, I said, Mr. President, do you have a drug problem? No, 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 we do not. I said, huh, big country, 1.4 billion people, right? Not much of a drug problem. I said, what do you attribute that to? Well, uh, the death penalty. And then I want to go to Filipino President Rodrigo Duterte. In his own words, in 2016, Duterte likened himself to Hitler. Hitler massacred three million Jews. Now, there is three million, there's a three million drug addict. I'd be happy to slaughter them. At least, if Germany had Hitler, the Philippines would have, but, you know, my victims, I would like to be all criminals.
So there is the Philippine President Duterte comparing himself to Hitler. Last month, again, the International Criminal Court opened a preliminary um, investigation into accusations he committed crimes against humanity by overseeing the killing of up to 8,000 people in his war on drugs. President Trump praised both China and the Philippines. Exactly, which is appalling. You don't kill your way out of a drug crisis. And what happened in the Philippines is you actually have death squad going around summarily rounding up or killing people based on allegations that they may use drugs. That is not how you solve a drug problem. And that we have a president who's actually saying, I want to emulate this behavior, which one of the things we've seen in the U.S. because of the war on drugs is the evisceration of due process and fair trial protections. So we've already got a problem in the U.S. The last thing you want to do is emulate things that even more undermine the rule of law here. And isn't the problem, especially in the United States, of, of, of drug trafficking these days, it's even more so now, it's not the uh, illegal or banned substances, it's the controlled substances, the chemicals like, uh, or, the, or the pills that are being dispensed by pharmacists and doctors uh, in, uh, in ways that are creating a massive epidemic across the country. So this is, if you're talking now about going after the drug dealers, you're talking about going after the pharmacists and the doctors, uh, not the people on the street selling drugs. Exactly. I'm not sure that's what President Trump had in mind, but clearly we have an opioid crisis that started with prescription drugs. Uh, there's been a failure to regulate. People are on the drugs. They become addicted. They're cut off from the drugs. Then they turn to street drugs that they can get. And again, we're not putting in place the harm reduction measures that we could. Safe injection site, needle exchange, access to naloxone, which can save lives in the moment, plus engagement with treatment. Um, and we do that. The reason we're not doing that and are not uh, we are trying to do that. It needs to be done much more comprehensively. But when you stigmatize people because they use drugs, then it's much harder to get them engaged with you. And that's what we're trying to do through harm reduction strategies. Um, Rolling Stone writer Jamil Smith tweeted, I'll just reiterate that the state has no business killing people and that the death penalty is a cornerstone of systemic racism. POTUS isn't talking about killing the Sacklers or big pharma executives. Um, this, this weekend, um, uh, you had also this mass protest at the Metropolitan where, um, people threw pills because the Sackler supports the Metro, the Sacklers, um, support the, uh, met as well as many exhibits around the country. Um, the Sacklers, of course, the makers of mm -hmm. OxyContin, yes. though they don't put their name on that drug. So I think what you've got are two different issues. You've got, does the U.S. government effectively regulate the pharmaceutical industry? Do they regulate both how things are distributed and do they regulate how things are marketed? Are they paying attention to that? And I think what we're seeing because of this crisis is the answer is a clear no. But the focus in terms of the war on drugs is, as you say, not pharmaceutical companies. It's actually people who use and often small-time pushers as well as some drug traffickers. Let's be clear, they're all those. But the the racism issue is profound in the U.S. The disproportionate policing in communities of colors has devastated those communities and led to mass criminalization of people in those communities. That's not going to be addressed by the death penalty. The death penalty 
universally is being rejected. About 141 countries in the world no longer use the death penalty whatsoever. The U.S. has been moving away from use of the death penalty. Now we see Trump wanting to revive the death penalty. At the very time that we know how many people have been found factually innocent who were on death row, that should give anyone pause. Could you talk about the example of, of Portugal and how it responded to its drug problem uh, early in the 21st century? Yes. In 2001, Portugal had an overdose crisis, much smaller place, but comparable in terms of the percent of the population to what we're having right now. And they made a radical decision to decriminalize all drugs. Uh, they set up dissuasion committees where basically if you were found to be using drugs, drugs, you would go before this committee and they would decide whether you needed treatment or whether th- your drug use was actually fine. As a result, their overdose rates plummeted, their HIV seroconversion rates plummeted. Now, to be clear, they have universal health care, they have treatment available to people. So if you did that in the United States, you would not necessarily see all those positive outcomes, but the very act of decriminalizing means you would at least reduce the harms that are associated with criminalizing people. And those harms include everything from, of course, being incarcerated, but even if you're not incarcerated but under the control of the criminal justice system, access to housing, access to scholarships for higher education, being able to get a job, voter disenfranchisement. So we actually see intense consequences as a direct result of criminalization itself. What we'd love to see are the benefits of actually health care treatment available to anyone. I wanted to end with the words of Rafi Lerma. He's the award-winning photojournalist who documented President Rodrigo Duterte's so-called war on drugs. He came into our studios. He was winning an award here in New York. His life has been in grave risk as he goes out and photographs the killings on the streets by military and vigilante paramilitary groups of people they say are drug dealers. Uh, he, Lerma, described the situation on the ground. It's really overwhelming what's happening in the Philippines right now. There are close to 14,000 people have been killed in this uh, the name of the drug war, and 4,000 of which have been claimed by police in uh, police operations. They've, uh, they claim that they have uh, killed uh, 4,000 uh, 4, people, and the rest are unexplained killings. Those, uh, they say, that uh, are deaths under investigation. And some of them are the vigilante killings. And, well, yes, so many people have been killed. I can say most of the killings are poor. Are the poor. I've also covered people, like, uh, getting caught with millions of drugs worth, but they're alive. They get due process. They go to court. They're not dying. And these people... They get killed with 200 pesos worth of drugs. That's around $4. That's your life in the Philippines. It's not fair. That's the award-winning photojournalist Rafi Lerma um, speaking to us in New York has faced many death threats as he goes out late at night on the streets and documents what he's seeing across the Philippines. Um, the president, Rodrigo Duterte, has compared himself to Hitler proudly uh, 
talks about, boasts about the number of what he calls drug dealers killed, President Trump has supported um, what Rodrigo Duterte is doing. We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, speaking with Michelle Alexander about the need to respond forcefully to challenge Jeff Sessions' renewed war on drugs. Dr. Roger Ray, in his Progressive Faith sermon, laid out many of the intersecting elements of race, drugs, and prison. Counterspin spoke with Art Way on a pot recriminalization. Off-Kilter broke down the repeal of the Cole Memo. Our activism for today is in repudiation of the renewed drug war and in favor of harm reduction policies. And finally, we just heard Democracy Now! highlighting Trump's affinity for dictators who like to compare themselves favorably to Hitler for their stance on the death penalty for drug dealers. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, I'm calling about episode 1172. Uh, one of the uh, female speakers, she mentioned the uh, Western, aggress- Western aggression against the Barbary pirates. Um, I remember reading a book, it was about uh, Thomas Jefferson. The Barbary pirates were doing aggression against the Europeans and the Americans by capturing um, trade ships. So it was almost a, I don't know if you want to call war justified, but it was a way to secure the trade routes by Jefferson launching a uh, aggressive war against the Barbary pirates. So uh, I remember the female speaker, I think it was earlier in the episode, said it was unjustified and just Western aggression. Well, if you just want your trade ships to get attacked and your crews conquered and taken, you know, if, if you want that to happen, hey, that's against you. But um, I feel like that could get uh, corrected. Anyway, uh, thank you very much. I enjoy the show. I enjoy hearing the opinions. Have a great day. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Joe from Chicago, and I just finished listening to your description of biking on the lakefront uh, with the wind. Well, I have a twist to it. I have an electric bike, and with the electric bike, the way I see it is I've kind of purchased my way out of having wind affect me at all. So I ride 20 miles an hour in either direction and have a good old time. And after thinking about it, I was trying to to make myself feel a little better about uh, that analogy and not put myself in the in the place of uh, of the oligarchy. And I realized uh, this is breaking down the system. The electric bike actually breaks down the system of the automobile. And the more we can take the wind and the cold and everything out of biking, everybody could bike all the time. And uh, we can do with less cars on the road and, and so on. So thanks for everything you do. Uh, again, this is Joe from Chicago. I sleep in my best of the left T-shirt uh, every night. And be good. Bye. Bye. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Quick uh, responses to these two voicemails. First of all, to put Joe's concerns to rest. As as I explained in, in the uh, analogy, the wind along the Lake Michigan Trail in Chicago was representative of structural oppression, but I don't think you need to worry that getting an electric bike to overcome the literal force of wind puts you anywhere near the same plane as like a rich person who's able to extract himself from an oppressive system by like being able to pay for bail or being able to hire an expensive attorney to get a, you know, a a drug charge to go away or something like that. So uh, Joe, no worry. You're, you're, you're completely right that electric bikes are systemically working to overcome the system of automobiles. I'm completely in in favor of that transformation uh, because when, when you think about it, when people decide that they can't bike to do whatever, they can't bike to the grocery, they can't bike to work, whatever excuses they want to use, it usually uh, falls into the categories of it's too hard, there are hills, there's wind, I, I'll end up uh, being sweaty when I get there, and having an electric assist bike overcomes so many of those barriers for so many people or or even just you know physical disabilities of you know a whole range that uh, that prevent people from being able to fully power their own bike but with an electric assist all of a sudden uh, they are able to use a bike in a way that they couldn't have before and so as either pre-made electric bikes or electric bike kits become more and more ubiquitous and cheaper it really opens the door for people to maybe become a one-car family instead of a two-car family or a zero-car family instead of a one-car family and replace it with bike riding with the help of electric assist. So completely in favor and in agreement with Joe on his conclusion. I just also wanted to assure him that uh, not to worry, you are not analogous to the oligarchy uh, in, in that analogy by having an electric bike. Second of all, about the Barbary Wars, uh, I, I had to go back and listen to this clip that the listener was referring to, some historian saying that the Barbary Wars were unjustified, and I just didn't know what he was talking about. So before I say anything, let's just hear that clip with a little bit of context. The militarism that lasted from before, during, and after independence and continued until 1890, more than a hundred years of daily, moment-by-moment warfare against Native people, at the same time invading other countries, the Barbary Wars in 1806 and 1809, and then uh, Mexico, 1846-48. That just continued and continued, and then jumped So, as you just heard, the historian doesn't make any judgment call about whether the action was justified or unjustified, was just simply stating it as a fact of U.S. militarism. And, look, I I did a little bit of a dive into research on the Barbary Wars. I am absolutely not going to attempt to debate historical military actions here 
my point is that that is not the point. The, the, the person talking was not debating whether or not the actions were justified. She was simply pointing out that the United States gets in wars all the time and has gotten in wars for hundreds of years. I will give you a little bit of context, though, since I didn't know anything about the Barbary Wars. I had to look it up. Uh, There are a couple of interesting bits. So basically, the Barbary Coast is North Africa as you come in from the Strait of Gibraltar. And so the you know, there are pirates all along there, and they would capture ships and demand tributes from their respective nations. And they ended up with these sort of weird agreements, you know, sometimes tenuous agreements held together by military force and diplomacy and basically forking over ransom money. And so different countries dealt with this in different ways. And so, you know, countries like Spain and France and Italy weren't going to war with these North African countries, even though they are the closest ones. But countries like Sweden and the United States, you know, at least in the United States, they sort of attempted to pay off the bribes first and then later decided to go to war. But as part of all of this, I thought this was a, a pretty interesting little tidbit. Uh, so Thomas Jefferson and John Adams are trying to negotiate this whole policy with with Tripoli's envoy to London, the ambassador. And the ambassador explains, you know, because like Jefferson is asking, hey, like, what do these people think they're doing? We didn't do any harm to them. Why do they think they can attack us? And this ambassador's response is, It was written in their Quran that all nations which had not acknowledged the prophet were sinners, whom it was the right and duty of the faithful to plunder and enslave. And so we, you know, we hear that and we're like, oh, that's terrible. Like those Muslims are using their religious book to decide to attack people and take their wealth, even though they didn't do anything. And so, you know, this listener calls in and is like, hey, the Barbary Wars were totally justified because like they were attacking our ships. What, you know, what do you expect them to do? And of course, at the same time, the United States is incredibly active in the transatlantic slave trade and Manifest Destiny deciding to extend the country coast to coast, wiping out whoever happens to be in the way at the time because they don't believe in the same book as we do. It's the same shit, different day. If, if you look through history and you try to make anyone completely justified and anyone else completely unjustified or come to some sort of clean and clear resolution, like you're not going to get there. It's a lost cause. In the fucked up context of the 1700s, everyone was doing fucked up stuff. That's not a surprise. What's interesting, though, is that the United States decided to go to war with these countries while other countries didn't. So, again, I'm not going to debate justification, but it's clear that other countries decided to do something else. They decided to use different forms of power, some militarism, some diplomacy, some payoffs, because that's just kind of how it works. And to be honest, it's not that much different today. So again, for me to waste time trying to uh, decide whether or not I think it was completely justified or completely unjustified would just get us all stuck in the mud. Instead, this is how I like to think of it. So what that historian was essentially saying on a national level was, imagine a guy who goes out partying every weekend, 
and he gets in fights every weekend, but he swears up and down that the other dude always punches first. I mean, okay, I guess. So does that mean that every fight was justified? Maybe through a certain frame, but dude, you're the common link who keeps going out and getting in fights every fucking weekend. You may have found a way to justify your actions, but in the end, you're the common link with all of these situations, and you need to learn to take responsibility for your part of making these problems happen. And that, I think, is what's more at the core of the history of American militarism. If you have any thoughts on that, I'd love to hear them. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. Don't forget to check out Breach. Breach is a new podcast that takes you inside the world's biggest hacks. They set out to answer questions about the hack of a huge American company and found themselves investigating a Russian conspiracy. Subscribe to Breach, B-R-E-A-C-H, in your podcast app right now. And that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofaleft, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of a Life podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofaleft.com. Best of a Life.